Hello and welcome to On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem. I'm your host, Nate Nelson. The Wehrmacht, Germany's army during World War II, have always been an intimidating sight, but at times they're also portrayed as a kind of neutral fighting force. While the extermination of Jews occurred behind the scenes, it's thought the Wehrmacht were engaged in traditional warfare, at a remove from Nazi war crimes. This was not the case. The Wehrmacht operated their own dedicated anti-Semitic propaganda department, which worked hand-in-hand with the Nazi party's propaganda ministry. Many Wehrmacht soldiers were recruited straight from Hitler Youth, and Wehrmacht units gave support to SS death squadrons as they carried out mass murders of Jews. In this episode of our show, Dr. Daniel Uziel, Israel historian and head of photographic collections at Yad Vashem, dispels the myths surrounding the Wehrmacht. But besides demonstrating that they were a Nazi fighting force through and through, we're going to answer some tougher questions. Like, how did the Wehrmacht develop an image of neutrality? And who might have had an interest in convincing people that they weren't, in fact, committing heinous war crimes? Dr. Uziel, thank you for sitting with me. What reputation did the Wehrmacht have originally? What are we trying to debunk in this conversation? Well, the original uh, reputation, post-war, of course, reputation of the Wehrmacht was that it was a highly, extremely highly professional army, a highly modern army, and that it was, perhaps most important for our topic today, that it was basically a political army, which means that it was disconnected from the from from the Nazi regime, from its war crimes, from its from its criminal actions and persecutions, and all the negative parts of the Nazi uh, regime. And even furthermore, it was argued that the main resistance, uh, wartime resistance to the to the uh, Nazi regime, came from within the army. And we know that the the main attempt on Hitler's life. Uh, was done by a plot um, of of uh, of army officers so this was the the the, the most central post war uh, um i would say cold war reputation of the of the wehrmacht at least in the west and why would it have been useful for the germans to claim to have this sort of ideologically neutral army First of all, politically, it was quite uh, convenient to have this clean reputation, especially during the 50s, during the rebuilding of West Germany. Uh, um, and during this uh, rebuilding, re- reconstruction of, of a completely new democratic state, it was easy to create new social political traditions based on the on this apolitical Wehrmacht. And the other thing was that uh, it part of this um, reconstruction of this new democratic state was its rearmament in the framework of what later became NATO. Um, and here it was uh, highly useful to present the Wehrmacht as a clean army because uh, it was impossible to create a completely new army five, uh, 10 years after the end of World War II without using the Wehrmacht's uh, veterans, uh, officers and soldiers who served in the original Nazi Wehrmacht. So in order to incorporate them into this new army, it was much easier and politically correct uh, to uh, argue that their their original army was not so bad. Let's get into who these people were and what they did. Tell me about von Reichenau. What is he responsible for? 
general, later, later field marshal uh, Walter von Reichenau, was a typical Prussian officer, an old school officer who served as a staff officer already during World War I. He was uh, originally an artillery, uh, artillery officer, but uh, since he was um, a, 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 a trained for higher post in the army in the post-World War I uh, period, he uh, served within the general staff of the Reichswehr, the much-reduced army of the Weimar Republic. And while he was there, he represented to a large extent the, the, the main spirit prevailing in the officer corps of this much-reduced army, which was highly nationalist, highly conservative. Uh, and uh, because of this attitude, this political attitude, uh, this officer corps in general tended to support uh, right-wing uh, nationalist uh, movements like the Nazi party. So we can see uh, that Reichenau started to support the Nazi movement and Hitler already before they came to power. So when they became, came to power, um, he took part, he participated and played a, a significant role in the Nazification process of, the, of this army, this apolitical army. Uh, which we'll, we're going to discuss later. But during World War II, after the invasion to the Soviet Union, he was promoted and became the, the commanding officer of uh, Army Group South on the southern flank of the Eastern Front. And he died in January 1942 after he suffered a stroke and then he was uh, fatally injured during uh, um, an, an aircraft uh, uh, crash accident while he was evacuated back to Germany. Um, but... Uh, what's uh, uh, quite significant about von Reichenau, and this brings us to, to our topic today, is a series of orders which he uh, issued while he was the commanding officer of the 6th Army during the first uh, six months of Operation Barbarossa, the invasion to the Soviet Union. And I want to quote a phrase from one of those orders, an order he issued uh, um, on 10th October 1941, it was called the so-called severity, severity order. Um, and it's in, it included the following phrases, and I quote, The soldier in the Eastern Territories is not merely a fighter according to the rules of the art of war, but also a bearer of ruthless national ideology and the avenger of bestialities, which have been inflicted upon German and racially related nations. Therefore, the soldier must have full understanding for the necessity of a severe but just revenge on subhuman jury. The army has to aim at another purpose, which means the annihilation of revolts in hinterland, which, as experience proves, have always been caused by Jews, end quote. And I think this is a good starting point for our discussion today. Right. I want to explore how an army ends up adopting an ideology in the first place. Is it a matter of who's in leadership or the wider culture of the nation that they're coming from, being that, you know, um, an army has to recruit thousands of young men, whatever they're coming hmm. uh, to the table with is, is what you get in the army. How do these factors sort of influence each other? Well, this is a really interesting question because uh, we definitely t can speak about uh, military culture. And in this respect, as we know, Prussia 
was it was said about Prussia that Prussia was uh, was an army with a state. And in this respect, the military continued to view its role in the state as uh, not only the, the guardian of the state in, in, in security matters, but also in political matters. And this became highly str- uh, much stronger during the Weimar Republic because of this basic animosity towards the, uh, the democracy and its values. Uh, so in this respect, uh, this conservative value that prevailed in the military since the Prussian times uh, continued in the in the Weimar Republic and helped to uh, create this identity, uh, uh, this identity of interests and value and ideologies between the between the, the military and the Nazi Party. So this plays a, a, a crucial role. Uh, Right after '33, when the Nazi uh, the Nazis came to power, and then they start this uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, process of adjustment, adjusting the state, the entire state, the entire state services, uh, organizations, uh, institutions, and the society uh, to their own uh, systems of value and political structures. And here we can talk about the beginning of this Nazification process. So what exactly comprises this Nazification process? This Nazification process was uh, was composed of several elements or measures uh, which happened in cooperation. It was not coerced by the Nazi party and the Nazi regime on the army. It was done in cooperation between these two uh, uh, institutions. And this comes into play, for instance, by changing the uh, symbols of the army, they include the swastika in the in the symbols of the different branches of the army, uh, and all soldiers are wearing from now on uniforms with the symbols and the emblems of of, of the Nazi regime, with the swastika. Uh, it comes into play in uh, um, um, the political education of the army, uh, part of up. Uh, of uh, upkeeping the, the fighting spirit and the fighting efficiency of the army is sort of creating this identity between this, uh, the feeling of identity of the soldier with the values and the state he represents or he serves. And it was done by introducing uh, Nazi ideology to this political uh, uh, training of the army, of the soldiers. And another um, measure that helped to create this, uh, to promote this uh, Nazification was changing the the, um, the oath of the soldiers. If the soldiers used to swear th- uh, to serve uh, loyally their country and the Kaiser or whatever it is, from now on they swear um, um, uh, personally to Adolf Hitler. Okay, so we've got this political environment and these various influences. We've got all the chemicals. We're mixing them together. Um, how does this manifest? What did the Wehrmacht actually do? Well, firstly, we have to make this dis- distinction between general war crimes and cr- and the participation of the Wehrmacht in the Holocaust. So it's it's a wise move to to discuss first the general framework which is the deep involvement of the Wehrmacht in a um, large amount of crimes uh, committed by, by, the, by the Nazi regime. First of all, I have to uh, point at something which is 
well, it looks quite obvious, but it's not so obvious, which is the fact that the military successes of the Wehrmacht, its victories on the battlefield, actually allowed the Nazi regime to commit so many war crimes upon other peoples, right? Uh, and this is a basic uh, uh, um, um, role played by the Wehrmacht. But then, furthermore, we can see how because of its uh, integration into the Nazi state and its uh, system of values and ideologies, the Wehrmacht uh, is, uh, became involved in different war crimes. For example, the execution, uh, the, the maltreatment and execution of, of uh, millions of uh, Soviet POWs uh, during the campaign in the East. Uh, we can see it in the enslavement, the participation of the, of, the, of the Wehrmacht in the enslavement of multiple uh, ethnical groups and, uh, and, and, and peoples uh, during uh, World War II. Uh, we can see it in the uh, participation of the Wehrmacht in the exploitation of camp inmates, uh, especially in its, its, uh, war, its, its related uh, war industry and armaments industry. Uh, so the Wehrmacht really plays a very important role uh, in several crimes uh, committed by the by the by the Nazi regime in different places. We we have to mention the the the, the central role of the Wehrmacht, for instance, in the occupation, the brutal occupation of former Yugoslavia uh, from 1941, where the Wehrmacht was put as in control of this uh, of of the of Serbia. The part that the Germans kept for themselves from from this uh, dismembered uh, former Yugoslavia, and here the Wehrmacht leads a very brutal uh, uh, occupation policy that led, among others, to the massive extermination of the Jews of the Jews of this country. Uh, so, uh, and this is an important point because in most cases we can see how the involvement of the Wehrmacht in uh, in the Holocaust happens within the broader framework of its general war crimes in World War II. How pervasive was this culture, were these crimes? Was it that there were certain sects that were more um, heinous and some which were less, which allowed the German government to sort of characterize the army uh, in one way or the other? Or were these crimes, uh, was this culture rampant throughout the entire army? Well, it's much more complicated because uh, we know that during World War II, around 70 million uh, men and women, mostly men, of course, served within the ranks of the Wehrmacht in different roles. Um, so, of course, not each one of them was involved in war crimes. Not each one of them killed Jews uh, for breakfast and so on. Definitely not. Uh, but there were different parts of the Wehrmacht that were more involved than others in in, in crimes against humanity, in war crimes, and in uh, were involved in, in the Holocaust. For instance, uh, security units that operated in occupied territories and were tasked to uh, to uh, uh, to combat uh, resistance, partisans, guerrilla war for uh, uh, warriors, and so on. Um, we can see this kind of um, uh, increased involvement within uh, units that were involved in war production uh, because uh, they used large amount of uh, of, of uh, slave uh, workers, inmates, and other uh, civilian workers. 
And what role did the Wehrmacht play in uh, propagating Nazi ideology and propaganda? Well, in this respect, they were quite crucial because uh, after the beginning of World War II, uh, the uh, 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 well, those operational areas of the Wehrmacht were restricted. Uh, the, uh, the access of, of civilian reporters and journalists, so this uh, these areas was highly restrictive. So, basically, when you look today at uh, 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 you watch a, 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 a documentary about World War II on the History Channel or whatever, uh, and you can see all those Nazi, uh, German tanks and soldiers, the Luftwaffe flies over England and so on. All those images were provided by those military correspondents that belonged. They, they were soldiers, which belonged to the propaganda branch of the Wehrmacht. So even today, we look at World War II through the eyes of the Wehrmacht. What we don't get usually in those uh, when we are look, uh, watching those those uh, documentaries is that large amount of this material was created in order in, in order to serve the Nazi, the Nazi propaganda machinery. So, for instance, it was customary uh, in 1940, 1941, for those war correspondents of the Wehrmacht, cameramen, press reporters, uh, photographers, and so on, to document uh, uh, Jewish ghettos in occupied Poland. And those images and reports and articles provided by those uh, reporters, by those uh, war correspondents, uh, were published uh, in the different uh, propaganda media of, of, of uh, the, the propaganda ministry and does serve the anti-Semitic um, um, propaganda of the Third Reich. So it was quite important in this respect. Uh, this propaganda branch, quite interestingly, was also uh, responsible for the political education from, 1930, from 1939. It was uh, 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 responsible for the political education of the Wehrmacht and for leisure activity of the Wehrmacht, which meant uh, providing movies to field units, to, uh, by providing uh, uh, a printing uh, uh, front newspapers, uh, different places, and spreading uh, those newspapers to the soldiers, to the troops, and so on. And of course, in doing all those activities, we can also find this kind of ideological education. For instance, those front newspapers included large amount of ideological content, which again serves as sort of, of, of this, uh, serve this, this uh, uh, nazification process. So considering all this, how did the Wehrmacht come to be perceived as a neutral army? Well, uh, at the end of World War II, of course, we have this uh, series of war crime trials. Uh, best known of them was, was the, the, the Nuremberg trial, or trials. There were several trials. And we can find that actually the Wehrmacht, or Wehrmacht officers, were tried in four of those uh, trials. So the Wehrmacht was put on trial at the end of World War II, which is highly interesting. And, and its, its involvement in war crimes and its uh, involvement in the Holocaust was actually exposed. In these, in these trials. However, at that time, we can also see the beginning of, of the Cold War. This rip between the, the, in, within this, uh, this wartime alliance. And at that time, it became highly crucial for both sides to uh, uh, recreate uh, their own Germany in their own spirit. So, of course, the Soviets created uh, East Germany which was a communist country, and the West, well, re-established a democratic Germany, which became the West Germany. 
And when it came to the Western rearmament during the early 1950s, it was crucial for the, for the former Western allies to win over the Germans and to rearm the Germans in order to strengthen their own Western alliance, which later became NATO. In order to do that, they had to forgive the Wehrmacht or to forget their problematic aspects of the Wehrmacht. As a result of that, especially the, the British government and the U.S. government tended to contribute to this process by saying, uh, by declaring that, well, the Wehrmacht was actually an army just like any other army fighting World War II. And as a result of that, they don't have any problem with its past, with its present, and uh, they don't have any problem with when the West German government decides to remobilize those veterans and to integrate them in the new West German army. One of the most important uh, declarations made at that time was done by General Eisenhower, uh, which was in 51, was still not the president. It takes one, um, one more year. He became president in 52. Uh, but as, uh, as uh, the, the uh, chief of staff of the American military, he uh, declares openly to the media exactly this thing. The Wehrmacht was just like any other army. So we can see this, this amnesia, sort of amnesia regarding the, the, the crimes of the Wehrmacht happening within the framework of, of the Cold War, definitely. Take someone like Eisenhower. Do you think it was an intentional act to promote this sort of political agenda? Or do you think that he and others actually believe this story? Because in some sense, I imagine, uh, if you were fighting in World War II against the Germans, you mm. would have seen the Wehrmacht in their sort of um, more traditional army capacity. You might not have seen the other side of them that had more to do with Nazi mm -hmm. ideology. Mm -hmm. well, uh, well, Eisenhower knew about uh, the problematic parts of the Wehrmacht, but again, it was highly crucial. Uh, this was uh, the, the, uh, the most important thing to do at that time was to create this new and strong alliance in order to withstand the, 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 the new threat a new communist threat from the East. So to summarize briefly, uh, we discussed the foundations which allowed a perhaps neutral army to begin with to transition to a more ideological Nazi army. Uh, and we also covered how that Nazi army was in large part let off the hook for perhaps political reasons or reasons of just effective propaganda. I'd like to ask, um, what would you have listeners take away from this story? What should we learn here? Well, firstly, the fact that the Wehrmacht was highly integrated and Nazified during the Third Reich. Uh, it was definitely not disconnected from, from the Nazi regime. It was definitely not, uh, not uh, an apolitical organization of the Nazi uh, state. It was one of the most, of the largest well, not one of the largest, the largest organization of the Nazi state. And, of course, because of its crucial role for the state, it also played a significant role in the crimes of this state. Um, and uh, last but not least, uh, when you are looking at those historical events, of course, in many cases, the most, imp imp most interesting part of the story is the creation of the narrative. Of, of those of those events and uh, uh, so we have to skip sort of this 30 years post-war 30 years 
of of uh, of looking at the Wehrmacht in an apologetic way. Uh, it was an army just like any other army. Uh, and the end of this narrative, uh, although it was known within academic circles, within scholars already uh, from the mid-1960s, uh, well, this knowledge or this image of the Wehrmacht as a highly problematic criminal organization came into public view only after the fall of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, and the, only then, uh, the beginning of the 90s, the, 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 the mid-90s, a new wave of scholars, young scholars, came out and exposed to the uh, broader public the problematic story of the Wehrmacht. Dr. Uziel, thank you very much. So in summary, it wasn't necessarily just the Germans that had an interest in maintaining this image of Wehrmacht neutrality. For different reasons, both the Nazis and the Allies were content with propagating this fiction. Propaganda, it seems, can be more complicated than it's made out to be. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem. I'm Nate Nelson. Thanks to everybody listening.